The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Uh, well, it's all happening in uh, London at the moment. Oh, gosh. So... What a calamity. <laughs> well, I think there's a couple of things worth pointing out about it. Yes. Uh, firstly, isn't it interesting that they cut taxes... Yes. ...and do a, a right-wing budget you'd have to say, right? A sort yeah, of a, yep, yep. a traditional Thatcher is Reaganite budget. Yes. And the market tanks. Yeah. The market hates it. Yes. Right? So it's a bit of a lesson for politicians that things have changed, you know. It isn't necessarily the case well, that, that you get a tick of approval from the capitalist markets yeah. for being a capitalist anymore. Yeah. So the new, the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, has come in with this promise to sort of uh, – Help out, uh, help out her people with tax cuts and caps on energy prices. The problem is both of those cost money, lots of money. And so the bond markets looked at this and gone, hang on, no, 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 no. This is <laughs> going to be inflationary. This is going to push interest rates up. And so yields have shot up and the pound's shot down, which is not what should happen. No. And, and the Bank of England last night steps in and starts buying yeah. buying what they call gilts in the UK, where actually bonds, or we call bonds. In the UK, they call them gilts. So yeah. the, the Bank of England's in there buying them again. Yeah. So And everyone's going, oh, quantitative easing. But, but this, is, this is quite a specific thing yeah. that's happened here. So... Because after the budget and the tax cuts, the yield on yields have jumped up so quickly. Basically, we've had a year's worth of bond yield movements in five days. And so that has left some pension funds who use hedging to smooth out their inflation risk. That has left them being facing margin calls. So they don't have enough liquidity. And so what have they been doing to get liquidity? They've been selling long-dated gilts, long-dated bonds, and that has sent bonds through bond yields through the roof. And we've got this sort of risk of pension funds becoming yeah. insolvent. So what the Bank of England was doing last night was a pension fund rescue, yeah, really. Yeah. Because they're all going broke. The pension funds were going broke. Yeah. And by broke, it's a short term thing, right? You know, yeah. that, that, So they're they, not they're not as if they're it's not as if they've got lots of borrowings and they'll go into the receivership. Yeah, but the, the technical definition of insolvent, which is not being able to pay your bills as they fall due, that was the problem that these guys had been hit with these uh, requests for liquidity that they couldn't meet quickly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just it's a great example, though, when you think about sort of the black swan type thing, the thing that no one sees coming. I reckon this is a great example. Like, yeah. Who would have thought that pension hedging, which is designed to smooth out the things for the conditions for the pension holders, who would have thought that that's where something blows up? Yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 so dramatic to watch. And and now you've got the IMF telling the trust government, can you please not do those tax cuts? That's a stupid idea. I mean, the IMF. 
Yeah, they're so loath to interfere in individual countries. I know, and, and, they're, telling, they are. and they're telling the United Kingdom, yeah. <laughs> it's not as yeah. if it's a third world country. Well, I mean, that's the, been the narrative over the last week, that this is what happens in emerging markets. Yeah. The bond bond vigilantes, bond traders, they just get control and, and now the uh, 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 now I think the conservatives in the UK are, are going. Oh, maybe we made a mistake with Liz Trust and yeah, Mr. Kwarteng. Yeah. Well, I mean, it looks like I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, how do they pull away from these tax cuts without looking like right idiots? But then again, how do they? not pull away from those tax cuts with the sort of bond market and people's pensions suddenly at risk. I mean, what a disaster. I know. Well, the Bank of England will end up having to fund the tax cuts. Yeah, yeah. And all of this doesn't... I mean, England's got this incredible inflation challenge. I mean, inflation could be running at somewhere around 15% by the end of the year because of high energy prices, high food prices. You know, the economy's stuffed, you know. Uh, you know, whoever thought Brexit was a good idea, it's gone south since then at a rate of knots. Well, the, the, the pound has collapsed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since Brexit and also but as in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, that and, and, you know, the pound should go up when interest rates go up. But the problem is that bond and currency traders, they see the recession coming in England as so bad that no one wants anything to do with the pound and it's yep. just being sold off. We do have this problem around the world of a strong US dollar, you know, delivering recession to everyone. Which means dollars. that, I suppose what it means is the strong US dollar means that there's nobody can really make mistakes now. You get really punished, yeah. which is what the UK has, has happened to the That's UK. That's exactly right. That's exactly um, right. And I, I suppose it's a lesson for Australia too because, you know, the Australian dollar is quite weak as well. Yep. Down to 64. Yep. Well, and, and and the problem here is that we are importing inflation. So all our imports become more expensive. That adds to inflationary pressures. That adds to the need for higher rates. And something's going to break. I mean, this is where the world is in... Well, the world is in this position where central banks need to break something now. You, you, they need to break something? Well, they need to... Yeah, they need to break the... They need to slow the economy down by breaking something. And I, I think the thing that needs to break will be employment. They need to oh. create unemployment. Well, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, which is, you know... I heard you on the radio the other day talking about the how the RBA has been obsessed, and obsessed is the right word, with getting in, getting unemployment down to historical levels. I mean, Phil Lowe was skiting about this yeah, I know. in March. Yeah, and, he talked and, about a historic opportunity. Yeah, and, and now that's blowing up in his face. Yeah. I mean, how much unemployment does he need to create? That, that's the question now. So, so that's question what my, for the Fed. As it happens, that's what my column in the New Daily is about this morning. Right. Um, so the, the Reserve Bank's current forecast for unemployment is to that it'll rise to 4% by the end of 2024, right? So a long way off. Yep. Um, so, the, I mean, and that's clearly uh, wrong now. I mean, not when I say wrong, it's, it's an optimistic kind of forecast. Do you reckon they'll get there sooner? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're sort of, they're talking about a, a soft landing, basically. They're yeah. talking about, yeah. they're talking about bringing inflation under control without a devastating increase in unemployment. Yeah. Although it is worth pointing out, as I do in the column, that um, that even what they're forecasting is 100,000 people out of work. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. an MCG crowd. Yes. 
of uh, a grand of, final crowd. All of whom have families and yeah, so, bills to pay. So even the, the modest increase in unemployment that they're forecasting, which is probably too optimistic, is 100,000 people. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. And America, it, it really needs to get the unemployment rate up from about 3.4%, 3.5% to 5%. Now, they need to put 2 million people out of work. Like it's, they're, they're, these are big numbers. Or else they need to uh, tolerate higher inflation. Yep. And so there's, a, there's an argument that isn't being had, I think, about whether... Uh, whether we can and should tolerate inflation more than 2% because they're all going, particularly in the US, they're going for 2% inflation. Yeah. Uh, here it's 2 to 3%. Yeah. Uh, slightly different. but So we could they could tolerate 3% here. But even so, I mean, really, why can't we have 5% inflation? Well, because poor people pay the biggest cost of it. Yeah, I it, know, it, crea- it, it exacerbates wealth inequality. So... I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but here we are sitting in Hawthorne, leafy Hawthorne, you know, saying, oh, why can't poor people just pay more for stuff? Well, yeah, I I know, know. but we're trying to stop... (laughs) No, but we're talking about unemployment as well. We're talking about uh, people's lives being devastated, misery being caused by being out of work. Yeah. I'm not saying the balance is easy, but it it is... I mean, we had had 2% unemployment for two decades. Yeah. You know... 25 years. Yep. But I think this is the point, isn't it? This is – the bill is coming due. We have had 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth. We've had 15 years of interest rates at ultra-low levels. This is the pendulum swinging the other way. And it's swinging really hard and fast. But, you know, this is is unfortunately the balance being restored. And yes, I agree. We we need some level of this is what central banks have been trying to do for ten years: get some level of inflation. It's gone too far, but now then they need to bring it back. But yeah, it's a really hard balancing act. One just one thing about unemployment in the labour market. I wonder around. There's a great Mike Wilson's Morgan Stanley's um, uh, chief strategist in the US. He was saying, "What if, what if companies don't lay off people?" It's very difficult to fill positions at the moment. So companies might hang on to labour, take the crunch in margins, even as their margins are coming down, because in even in 12 months it won't be easy to refill those positions. So that could be another problem for central banks, that that those inflationary pressures remain because people just don't hang... The people... Oh, I see. Companies so hang on to their people. He's proposing that as a problem. Yeah, well... Possibly. Definitely a possible a problem for margins. Damn, companies aren't laying people off. Yeah, but bugger. <laughs> but if, I know, but if you're investing in an XY company on the share market, yeah. then, you know, you're, what you've got is you've got company, a company's profits coming down and their margins coming down, but they're hanging on to expensive labour rather than getting rid of it to improve their margins. That's bad for stocks. Well, uh, that was his point. No, okay, but the, the the management and the board are presumably making rational decisions in hmm. that case for what they think is the best interest of the company. Yes, long yes. term. So you know. Yeah, but yeah, it's interesting. No, balance, but it's very yeah. interesting. Very, very, very interesting. Yeah, and it's all it is all happening. And the other thing that's happening this week, which we need to mm. solve, <laughs> solve. Okay, yes. is Optus. Oh, oh, solve. Well, <laughs> it's hard to know where to start. Well, isn't it just the perfect confluence of 
it's a perfect target because you know everyone's who's got a mobile phone or a, a phone number. You got to take all this ID. You know, get a hundred the, the famous hundred ID checkpoints, and that's that's what's that that very system is is at the heart of this problem. Yeah. Because those ID checkpoints, our Medicare numbers and our passport numbers, our driver's license numbers. But is it the case? I mean, I, I, I must confess I haven't read every single word on the subject. But is it the case that the hackers are now apologising? What's yeah, going I on? I get that either. I'm not sure if they're apologising to. Is that them? Is that really them oh, who, who, who are apologising and saying we're sorry and and uh, we'll never do it again? Or I don't know what they said. Oh, I mean, the whole thing is just so murky, right? Like. Whenever I see the AFP are involved, like, what are they going to do? You know, sure. they're going to say there's someone in Russia who's hacked or wherever, whatever country is, but there's no repercussions. Like, they're not going to, you're not going to see the hackers in the magistrate's court, you know, anytime soon. Like, these, sort of almost the perfect crime. It's all so murky. Yeah, well, they've demanded ransom and then it hasn't been paid and then they're demanding ransom off individuals. And <laughs> but, but even the ransom's like a million dollars. Someone on Twitter made the good point. They can't be from Sydney because that's a, you know, that's a second-hand land cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like that uh, Austin Powers film, you know, I demand one million dollars. I mean, what sort of ransom demands that? Yeah, well, maybe they just thought that's, that'll do us and that's something that, that they'll pay. Yeah, at yeah. Least, you know, make well, it a billion dollars. Yeah. I know. mean, having written about this a couple of months ago, talking to some sort of cyber experts, one of the interesting things is there's this really big legal question about whether it's illegal to pay a ransom. So technically it is because you might be funding crime or funding terrorism or something like that. So... It hasn't really been tested in court, though. So there's this grey, massive grey area whether do people pay the ransom, do they not pay the ransom? And, I mean, you know, even probably paying the ransom here wouldn't make the problem go away, but it might help. I don't know. Well, they're not paying the ransom, are they? It doesn't appear. I mean, it's not really clear to me what anyone's doing other than throwing up their hands and saying this is really bad. I mean... One aspect of the... Of the of the story that hasn't really got a lot of attention, I think, is the fact that um, uh, Ber- Gladys Berejiklian recently arrived at Optus. Yeah. And, um, you know, she's now in the thick of it. I talked to her in her new role a, a couple of months ago, actually. Oh, yeah. When she was at Optus. And one of the things she said was, oh, it's so nice to be not in the sort of day-to-day spotlight, people talking about what you're wearing and what every utterance, utterance you make is, you know, yeah. how's that's being sort of... Uh, Past, but she's yeah. probably she's probably longing for Parliament now. Oh, she might be <laughs> might be easier in Parliament than fighting some Russian hackers or something. Uh, oh, what a mess! What an absolute and mess! And uh, do you think there'll be a, a class action? Oh, I think there'll definitely be a class action. Yeah, and then you've got this question of um, does then will will there be sort of damages through the class action? Will they need to pay compensation to business? And then this great question of whether. Who's going to pay for the new passports and driver's licenses and all that? Yeah, sort of yeah. Stuff. Well, the government's all saying that you know it's got to be Optus pays. Got to be Optus, yeah. So that could be a billion dollars. I mean, that's a fair whack. Yeah. And then you've got to think about the, you know, how is this going to turn people off from becoming Optus customers? So, has anyone have you looked at um, uh, the Optus's parent share price, Singapore Singtel, Telecom? No, I haven't. No. No, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is there. Um, 
I mean, they're a huge company, right? Massive conglomerate, fingers in all sorts of pies. So, yeah, maybe. You know, I guess they ride this out. Um, but yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable position to be in. I mean, this will the telco market's extraordinarily competitive in Australia. Yeah, Optus will just have to launch a price war to win people over. They'll have to they'll have to go really low. So, I mean, I, I don't know what the how that works, but. Um, it's down 1.9% past five days. Okay, well. Singapore Telecom, Greg just gave me the... Maybe the uh, Singaporean punters are uh, holding their nerve at the present. Yeah, well, they're not dumping the sock at least. No, that's right, that's right. Perhaps we better move on to questions. Yeah, we've got some great ones today. Yeah. Mitch says, I'm 35 years old, I've got 150k in super, another 120k in a share portfolio and 100k debt on my house. Given the uncertain times ahead, is my money safe from the government? Or is there a chance of them touching my super if we go into a recession? I don't think they'll touch your super, Mitch. No, you're you're fine, Mitch. I mean, the the eternal question around super is, will there be some rule change that makes it less attractive? Say, changing the tax settings, which are very generous in some areas. But I I, I think Mitch, at 35, he can just keep socking it away and he'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, Ian has asked a, a question that was... Addressed a little bit. Is the British economy in a death spiral? My guess is your answer is probably not. But would you... You would have to agree that they've sped past quite a few off-ramps and can't have many left. Oh, I think the British economy has been in a death spiral for about 40 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at the pound... Well, I had a graph on the power of the pound a couple of nights ago or yeah. last night um, yeah. uh, since uh, since World War Two, And it's... Okay. Uh, the pound in 1949. Yep. The pound was uh, four dollars, four US okay, dollars. Yep. And close to a reserve currency for the world. Yeah. Uh, September 1949, there was a 25 percent devaluation, which began the long decline. <laughs> the long decline. Yeah. And uh, and now it's basically one dollar. So four dollars to one dollar. Yeah. And you think about that. It's not a place with a whole lot of industry. You know, it used to be a financial centre, but Brexit sort of hurt yeah. that. Tourism, bit of primary industry. I mean, there's nothing that's coming out of England to save it, right? So I, I think uh, Ian's right. Not many <laughs> exits left. <laughs> Luke says, I've kept an eye on Domacom since you gave it your kiss of death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kiss of death was me buying the, th- the stock in the thing. And now it's been suspended from the ASX, I presume, from low price or volume traded or just generally being too small of a fish. Can you tell me what's going on? Does this mean you can't invest in it until it gets readmitted for quotation? Um, okay, so Domacom has been actually suspended for about 18 months. It's been 6.5 cents since May 2021. Um, uh, since then, during that, during that period, they sacked... Arthur Naomides, who was the founder, mm-hmm. who was also the founder of Premium, mm-hmm. which is why I invest in him because I thought he did a good job with Premium, so I'll back his new venture. Anyway, yep. so uh, they've, they've fired him and appointed some other guy, I can't remember his name now, CEO, and John Houston has come in as chairman. Right. Um, so the company's still going, they're growing, they're okay, they're not, I don't think they're going to go broke. Yeah. Um, but they are struggling to get back on the ASX. I mean, right. They're trying to they're trying to persuade them. I mean, it isn't to do with uh, being too small or uh, low volume and all that stuff. It just simply they uh, they got into strife 
uh, last year. Um, uh, in terms of capital raising, they had to be sus- they had to be suspended, and then um, uh, haven't managed to get back yet, which is I frustrating. Like, I like Luke's optimism, though. He still wants a, he wants a chance to have a crack. I, I, I applaud that. No, well, you can't. You, that's right, Luke. You can't you can't invest in it until it gets back on the on the ASX <laughs> that's list. Right. And uh, and Luke, you can buy my shares. <laughs> I could. Uh, I've got a few you could have. Um, and Luke's second question is, I'm interested in buying some shares or ETF that tracks Australian residential property market. Any ideas how you can do that? Uh, Vanguard Australian property is just retail, commercial, industrial rather than residential. So, you look, there, isn't, there aren't any ETFs that, that track residential property. The, the, um, y- your best uh, tracker of residential property in Australia is the banks. Yeah, or right. uh, or uh, one of the many mortgage companies. I mean, that's they nice are thing. basically proxies for what happens in yeah, residential. Right. I mean, it's it's not direct, Luke. But I think Mortgage Choice is still uh, listed, isn't it? Or yeah, you've I... got AFG and yeah. you've got Pepper. Um, I mean, yeah. there's a number of of these listed non bank lenders and bank lenders. So that's e- um, the best way to do Evan Thornley, I've written this up. Evan Thornley's setting up a fund yeah, to invest in isn't it? residential property. Yeah. It's a wholesale fund. It will be a wholesale fund, um, but uh, if you're a sophisticated investor, you, you'll be able to invest in that, but it's not really there yet, I don't think. Sandra asks, my husband and I are religious listeners to your podcast and have always have robust dinner conversations about topics on the Money Cafe. A couple of questions for you. <laughs> their place, their house <laughs> must be hey. an interesting place at night. Absolutely. Sorry. My husband is currently undertaking an MBA full-time this year to pivot into a different career path and therefore is not working. Will his hex debt be tax deductible when he starts working again? So uh, there's two types of hex. There's fee help and there's hex help. And I, I, f- I fully understand the difference. Mm. Um, I, I've, I have a feeling that fee help is to do with more to do with MBAs or postgraduate study. Yes. So, it, it, um, and fee help is tax deductible in some way, but I'm, uh, I really think you need, Sandra, to get some advice yes. from an accountant yep. and not listen to a couple of blokes sitting in a cafe uh, yeah. chatting in a podcast. Yes. Oh, who don't really know? Oh, unless you do know what you're talking about. No, I don't know what I'm talking about. But you could even ask the ATO. They will have. Yeah, yeah. They, they will have some oh, good yeah, starting right. point information on this. Oh, I'd say that because I've done. I've recently done my tax myself, um, and, and the ATO website is very helpful. Right. So that might be a good place to. Yeah. Go. Well, there, there is. I mean, I did Google it, and um, there, there is quite a bit of stuff that I saw. I read it and yep. failed to understand it. Yes, okay, uh, right. Okay. Okay, and Sandra's quest, second question is, there have been lots of comments from the AFR, thanks for reading, Sandra, regarding a potential spin-out of Mineral Resources Lithium Company. Could you please explain why a spin-out can enable market value to be instantly created? Oh, I haven't seen it. Is that right? Is, it, is there yes, talk about there, there that? Yes, there is talk about that. So Min, Mineral Resources has an iron ore business and a mining services business and a lithium business, and they are looking at spinning out the lithium business. And, and how that works is, is the market value is not instantly, instantaneously created. It's essentially taken from the mothership. So a, a slice of mineral resources and its value would be put into a separate vehicle uh, on the ASX. Um, spin-offs have a great record, really, on, on the ASX. They're, they've typically yeah, done really well. one plus one often equals yeah. three. And, and this is a way, Sandra, of saying, of, of sort of... Um, better highlighting the value of that business when it's 
outside the uh, main group. So, yeah, as Alan says, one plus one often equals three in Australia. So um, we wait to see what Chris Ellison, the founder of Mineral Resources, does. Derek says, I'm a devoted listener to each episode of Money Cafe. Uh, a foreign and multi, a foreigner and multi-billionaire, good God, a foreigner, Joe Lewis has secured more than 50% ownership of Australian Agricultural Company, bypassing any ASIC approvals. He is now in control of a company which is not only a leader in beef, beef production, but also owns more than 1% of Australia's land mass. Is this legal? What are your thoughts about the company's future and its share price? Well, he's been creeping up. He's been creeping up, yep. Um, and, which and is 3% every six months. Yes. That's what, you can, that's what you're allowed to buy. Without launching a takeover, yep. That's, that's what he's done. He's just, bought, he's just bought a parcel of 5 million shares or something. It's t- uh, tipped him over 50%. Yep. And uh, he doesn't need ASIC approval for this. No. He, 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 would, he has received in the past FERB approval, which is the Foreign Investment Review Board, Um. So there's no nothing it, illegal. It is about legal. This. It yeah. is legal. I mean, yes, if someone else wants to buy the thing, um, they're welcome to have a crack at it. But yeah. at the moment, he's the guy who wants it. And I mean, this company has been something of a battler for a long time. So he's, you know, buying on the cheap and pushing, pushing the share price up for everyone. I guess so. But yes, there, there's no issues with the legality of it. No. Is it your turn? Your turn. Tim, Tim says, I'm still, I'm still miffed why my wife doesn't receive super as a music tutor at school. When this is questioned, we were advised she wasn't employed by the school and she invoiced the school for work and was paid as a creditor. Does this sound like a legitimate reason to avoid paying super? I presume you mean, Tim, that she's paid as a contractor rather than a creditor. And if that's the case, then uh, what she has paid includes super. Yes, and she's... Uh... She, her obligation is to put money into super herself. Yep. That's the deal. Yeah. So she is paid super. It's just contained. It's just in the invoice. Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, that that's the difference between independent contractors. Yeah. And employees. I'm a contractor to the ABC, and they pay me an and, amount yeah, that and, is include super. And there are benefits to that arrangement uh, that independent contractors, you know tax benefits and the way they can structure their affairs yeah, that well, employees can't do. And this is one of the... We can yeah. all change our domicile to the Cook Islands. Yeah. Where there's palm trees. Yes. And <laughs> there's a podcast <laughs> in the Cook Islands. <laughs> but yes, that, that, that's the way, that's the rub of the green there, Tim. If, if she's an employee, she'll get paid super by the school. Eleanor asks, a whole episode of superannuation and no mention of the renewed call for the vast pool of funds in superannuation to be used for nation building. What are your thoughts on the idea? Can superannuation funds continue to fulfil their legal duty to act in the best interests of members if other factors, like climate change and social welfare, are also considered in investment decisions? So there used to be a rule called the 30-20 rule, uh, which required um, pension funds and life insurance companies to invest at least 30% of their funds mm. into government bonds, mm. 20% of which should be in federal government bonds. That's the basis of 30-20. Yep. And, the re- and, and what that was about was uh, uh, that it's part of the obligation that's on you uh, in return for the tax break yes. you get. Yes, yes. Right? Yep. So there is a history, uh, there is a history of requiring these funds to do a certain type of investing 
in order to to uh, pay back or you know to to uh, in return for their tax break. Yeah, right. That yeah. so there is there is some history to that. Um, Paul Keating abolished the thirty twenty rule in nineteen eighty four, um, and uh, these days nobody tells super funds where to invest. Yes, although Paul Keating ha- uh, prominently suggests in our newspaper quite regularly that super funds should be doing exactly the sort of nation building that Eleanor suggests. Well, that's right. So he's changed his... <laughs> he's changed his so he's, he's not as prescriptive as he was under that thirty twenty rule, but he, no. he is supportive of that. What, what do you reckon? I mean... I think they've got it. I think it's up to the government to come up with um, uh, nation building securities that the, in, the the super funds can invest in, yep. and are good to inv- are worth investing in. And so I think the it's not up. It's up to the um, it's up to the government not to prescribe it, but to attract it. If you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting. So, so you favour a more formal? I uh, think they should. I think they should. For this. Well, and the the way that they the government could make it attractive for the super funds is yeah. by is by underpinning the uh, uh, underpinning the risk in some way. Yeah, yeah. But not a full government guarantee, but find some way to lower the risk of the investment, uh, so the super funds get their return, but with a slightly lower risk because it's government supported. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm not in favour of the government passing legislation requiring super funds to invest a certain amount in. What a, what's called nation building, but I do think there is a case for the government to attract that money yeah. in some way. And I think at the moment super funds are actually doing a pretty good job of assessing these opportunities through a long-term financial lens. I mean, I think that, you know, a 30-year financial lens does lead them to invest, you know, that, that they own more infrastructure than basically anyone in the world, any other pension system in the world. That They own, you know, they're getting into renewables Yes, because it's good for climate change, but also because there's lots of money to be made in it. So I think super funds are doing a pretty good job of actually balancing long-term financial uh, considerations with nation-building considerations. I, I, I don't know if we need something formal. I think. It, yeah, no, I, t- I quite agree. I think I, it's sort I, of I, happening. I, no, I don't think there should be something formal. I think the government should could launch green bonds, yeah. for yeah. example, yeah. or, you know... Uh, Hydrogen bond bonds, yeah. perhaps, yeah. to if they want money to go into hydrogen, yeah. issue some bonds, underpin the risk, and the super funds will get into it. But I, I, I do, you know, worry a little bit about this idea that super funds need to be doing what governments should do. Like, you, you want better education, like. Oh, I see, sure. should do that. No, 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 I totally agree yeah. with that. I mean, the, the, the super funds have to provide retirement yeah. incomes. That's yeah. the job. Yeah. Not to not to build nations. That's and, the government's job. And not get caught out by uh, margin calls in, uh, in, well, in, right. in the UK or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Okay, we've got one yeah. more question, which is really long. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's from Saul. Um uh, who says, we love to listen to your weekly podcast in the car with my spouse. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so he's a shareholder of Rio Tinto and he's just got a, um, a notice of meeting in the mail mm. uh, where he's uh, been asked to vote on a joint venture with China Baowu Steel Group owned by the Chinese government. And the reason that they uh, have to get shareholder approval for that is because um, uh, China Baowu Steel Group is associated with Rio Tinto's largest shareholder, Chanelco, which is, and because they're both owned by the Chinese government. Yes. So, uh, and the rules require um, uh, a deal a deal of this size uh, with an associate of your largest shareholder 
has to go to shareholders. Yes. So, okay, so they've done that. Um, but what uh, Saul's on about is Resolution 2, uh, which says, which gives prior approval, which gives has shareholders giving prior approval for any acquisition or disposal of a substantial asset from or to China Bowood, um, BN is hereby approved, which is vague and open-ended. And I bloody agree. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Why are they got such an open end? They don't need to do that, you would think. Why are they doing that? I think what they're trying to do here is um, give themselves flexibility to do these deals without having to come back to shareholders every single time. Um, but but you're right. When you read this resolution, this idea of any acquisition or disposal of a substantial asset, as Saul says, what is a substantial asset and what is an associate? I mean, yeah. these guys are associated with the Chinese government. Um, Saul makes the point that if the Taiwan situation explodes, that you know we're going to be having some argy-bargy with the Chinese, which is a good point. Um, Saul's question is, though, is why can't Rio do the exploration and take the profits themselves? They have plenty of cash. True, they do, but they're wanting to do a deal here with a steel a customer that helps underpin yeah. the returns from this steel yeah, business. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's and, fine. And they've been in business with Bow with Bow Wow for Bow yeah. for decades. Yeah. So right, there's nothing wrong with doing that deal, but the but resolution two is a blank check. It does look very open-ended. Yeah. It's a blank check. So Saul says, should Rio shareholders vote this down? I reckon they should. Yeah. Oh, I think... Revolt. Revolt? <laughs> Mutiny. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's been plenty of mutinies at AGMs of Rio recently. Especially um, those attended by Stephen May, our other money cafe person. Anyway. That's right. I mean, it, it's, it's a good question. I mean, yeah. I think we should sick Stephen onto them. It, it, it is a hey? question as to what... Is this why is this so open ended? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to ask Rio. Yeah, good. Yeah, there I'll, you go. Well, I'll, 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 keep an eye on Chanticleer and the yeah, financial we'll, review, we'll Saul, and we'll, uh, we'll find out how our far man James they Thompson to will get to the bottom of it, and he'll put Rio on the spot. And we'll I'll let you know what answer we get when I'm back on. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe. It's been great. Good questions uh, this week. So thanks very much for that. Keep them coming. Stephen Mayne will be back next week to answer your questions with me. So send them in to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you next week. (laughs) 